0: Where is Miami-Dade County going to take all its trash? South Florida's airports lead the country in toxic lead pollution, and America's southernmost county just turned 200 years old. This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host this week, Kate Payne. This hour, we'll look at why Miami-Dade County is running out of places to take its garbage. The county's trash chief resigned this week, warning that officials may have to halt all development if they can't find a fix. And we'll dig into an investigation into toxic pollution from local airports. Many residents don't know the risks of lead emissions from planes. And this year marks two centuries since the founding of Monroe County, the highs and lows of living in paradise. That's all coming up right after this news. Kate Payne. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Trash. It's one of those municipal services where, if it's working well, you may not think about it at all. And if it's not working, it's a crisis. This week, Miami-Dade County's trash chief announced he's resigning. But before leaving, Solid Waste Director Mike Fernandez issued a stark warning. If Miami-Dade doesn't find more places to send its garbage, the county will be forced to declare a moratorium on construction next year. That's after the county's trash incinerator plant in Doral caught fire earlier this year, shutting it down indefinitely. Roughly half of Miami-Dade's garbage was burned at the Covanta facility. Without it, the county's trash is filling up landfills quickly. What do you think Miami-Dade should do with all its trash? Do you live near a county garbage facility? give us a call at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Yesterday, I spoke with Doug Hanks. He covers Miami-Dade County government for the Miami Herald and has been writing about all of this. Doug Hanks, thank you for joining us.
1: Sure. Happy to be here.
0: The Miami-Dade County's Solid Waste Director, Mike Fernandez, put in his resignation this week in a detailed five-page letter. Why is he stepping down?
1: Well, there's clearly a big split between him and the mayor, Danielle Levine-Cava, and the trigger was likely this fire that hit the county's incinerator plant in February and shut it down, which put the, the garbage system in total crisis. Because that, depending on how you do the math, burns about half the county's trash, let's say, every day. Without that, they've been shipping much of it up to like central Florida, a landfill there they have under contract, and been using a landfill down in South Day that the county owns. And that has just really scrambled all of the county's plans long term. Where they're going to dispose of trash as the population grows.
0: In his resignation, Fernandez also gave this warning that if the county doesn't come up with these long term solutions of of ways to get rid of this trash, that it will have to stop all development in the county. Why is that?
1: That was probably like the biggest revelation in the letter because the administration has not said that publicly yet. The county's own growth rules says that if we're going to create new housing by changing the zoning and area to allow it to build more, projections have to show that the county can handle five more years of population growth and the trash that population will produce, the garbage. And that's always just been a very perfunctory thing. The Solid Waste Director signs a form that goes into the file when a developer asks for essentially a zoning change. but apparently Mike Fernandez has been saying, I'm not going to sign that. Wow. Or at least has been saying, we're coming up on a on a problem here because he said that in 2024, so next year, unless steps are taken now, we will not have that five years of capacity, which would be a huge, huge problem for developers. Absolutely, There's lots of asterisks on that in that it's not like they have to open a new landfill by next year, but they have to have enough things in place so that the solid waste director can reasonably say we'll be okay in five years.
0: How likely do you think it is that the county gets to that point of not having that five-year capacity and triggering this this moratorium?
1: I mean, I would say very unlikely in that there's going to be a new solid waste director and the mayor is going to hire that person mm-hmm. and I would imagine there would be consensus on where are we on this? Let's look at the numbers. Sure. Um, part two is A big fix would be just getting this incinerator running again, which is very doable, but it's also very contentious. And so the county has really dragged its feet on that decision. You know, you can repair it, but it needs to be replaced one way or the other. And there's a big fight going on whether or not to build it a new one right there, which is what Mike Fernandez wanted to do, or go through this lengthy process and more expensive process of finding another spot to put it.
0: Sure. And again, with that trash incinerator, it's the facility in Doral that, that caught on fire in February. And not surprisingly, given the chance, some folks in Doral would rather not live next to a trash incinerator anymore. So tell us more about those barriers as far as rebuilding that facility.
1: Right. I mean, they're only political barriers. Mm-hmm. The county commissioner from that area, who is new, He used to be the mayor of Doral, Juan Carlos Bermudez. He lives near the thing, and he's been against – he wants it out. And Bermudez is an important ally of Levine Cava on the commission. So there is some resistance there. Now, it's not clear how dug in Bermudez is on this. He said things like we need a short-term solution, we need a long-term solution. So it was supposed to come to a head in June with a report from the mayor – making a recommendation that was delayed until September. So theoretically, it should come for, to a head again. You know, they're really waiting on the mayor to say, like, listen, this is the band-aid we need to rip off, right? Whatever it is, this is what we need to do, which would then allow the very lengthy process of building a new plant to begin.
0: Mike Fernandez, the outgoing trash chief, outlined some other potential fixes as well as far as expanding existing landfills. What are those options on the table?
1: Right. And when you read his letter and then a memo that the mayor's office put out on solid waste, it seems like these two options are inevitable, which is expanding the North Dade landfill and then expanding the South Dade landfill. Because as the administration explained, if we close these, it costs us a ton, a ton of money every year to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we keep them open, we get revenue. If you lose revenue at solid waste, that means the, the residents slash voters are going to pay more. So they're, they're going to avoid that at all costs. Mm-hmm. But the question of this is timing, because this is a mayor who's running for re-election. Sure, uh, She's definitely the choice of the environmentalists and values that position. And does she want to be bringing a plan to expand landfills and all of the negative that comes with all that? So not clear the timetable of when that decision needs to be made but in fernandez's memo he says as you know i brought this to you two years ago he he was very deliberate in laying out like this is when i made the recommendation you've done nothing and that uh tension really uh bubbled to the surface in his letter and then it really came out the next day yesterday when the mayor responded with a memo to the commissioner saying essentially Mike Fernandez gave 2 weeks but he's gone today. I've got a new person, an interim in charge and he's on administrative leave. Wow. Yeah, so I mean she's had breaks with the department heads in the past but that was that was something.
0: I just think about trash collection as one of these basic functions of government really and something that's pretty vital for society to function smoothly. What happens if the county can't make any of these local solutions work?
1: Mm, Everyone will have to pay more for tax for trash collection. They'll send it outside of the county. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really not super dire, I would imagine, in that there are options. One of the big problems for trash collection is how much the public is willing to pay. Sure. Because they're not paying enough now. There's a rate increase on the table for this year that seems to be controversial and seems to be it's, it's going to be a big lift. Mm-hmm. So that's where things are heading now. If you really hit a crisis, they would have to raise fees, but then there's ways out of that too, right? They can recall the people who approve the fees. I mean, it can get ugly if 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 the voters feel that they've been given a big noticeable tax increase.
0: But then thinking down the chain as well, and sending our trash to other communities in, in Central Florida and and wherever, seemingly they're having similar fights. Is there a concern about we may not be able to to continue to export our trash in the way that we have?
1: Yes. I mean, they certainly can't, right? I mean, it has to be burned, essentially, mm-hmm. according to the county's strategy right now. the The system really only works under the anything close to the current fee structure if trash is being turned into something else as opposed to just being buried. That that incinerary plant is the vital part of the county's garbage disposal plan.
0: Well, Doug Hanks, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Doug Hanks covers Miami-Dade government for our news partner at the Miami Herald. I'm Kate Payne. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Miami-Dade's trash chief warning that the county may be heading toward a garbage crisis. Call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576, or send us your thoughts on Twitter at WLRN. Joining me now to talk more about this is Miami-Dade County's Chief Operations Officer, Jimmy Morales, who oversees the Department of Solid Waste Management. good afternoon kate (laughs) thank you for joining us and also with us is miami-dade county commissioner raquel regalado
2: hello hello jimmy how are you hello commissioner how are
0: you doing (laughs) Good, good 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 to have you both so mr morales beginning with you do you agree with this assessment from the former trash chief that as soon as next year the county won't have five years of capacity and will be forced to put a moratorium on development
3: I actually agree with what Doug said, which is that we're gonna solve this problem. I mean, clearly it is a risk. Um, The fire has unfortunately put us in a position where we lost the ability to process approximately 50% of our waste. Uh, And so now we are going to have to do more landfilling. We are clearly probably gonna have to bring back the uh, portion of the plant on a temporary basis. Um, And we're gonna have to look at um, expanding our landfills locally, doing some outside. But I mean, we'll come up with a solution short-term And then we've got to focus on what is a medium and long term solution, which is, are we going to build? And I think we are. a waste energy facility. Where are you going to locate it? Um, So this is not an unsolvable issue. But as Doug points out, it it is one that's going to be an expensive one. And, you know, uh, he mentions that uh, we're having a, quote, controversial solid waste fee issue now for only $36 a year. When we know that we probably need over 100 to solve the problem. And that's without building a new facility. So the question does become, you know, what is the public willing to pay for Trash is not uh, a sexy topic politically, mm-hmm. uh, but as we now learned, and, and you know, maybe out of every good crisis comes uh, something good, which is the people now realize that disposal of trash is not something you should forget about once it's gone, but that does have long-term implications like our ability to develop our environment. Um, and uh, hopefully what'll come out of this working with the commission, uh, uh, the mayor is, uh, you know, is, is a solution that works and is reasonable. And it's sustainable.
0: Sure. And in his resignation letter, Mr. Fernandez did outline recommendations that he said he'd been making for months and in years in some case, including recommending a new incinerator well before it caught fire. Why hasn't the administration acted sooner on some of these issues?
3: Well, you know, last summer of uh, the uh, last spring, the commission uh, directed the, uh, uh, the administration to study uh, a waste energy facility, a new one, Uh, and locations. And we came back to the commission last summer uh, with a report with possible four possible sites and asked them to give us the opportunity to go out to the community, get some input, and then come back with a recommendation. At that point, the commission voted to actually build it at the Covanta site, current Covanta site, under the then chairman and previous uh, Mm -hmm. District 12 commissioner. As as, uh, Doug pointed out correctly, uh, a new election occurred, a new commissioner came in, and this past March, the commission unanimously voted to undo that decision, and, and told us please go back out, look at some more sites, look at alternative technologies, and 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 come back. And that's the report that he mentioned. That we're going to be coming back uh, together with um, looking at zero waste and some other options uh, in September. So these are difficult issues; they're politically sensitive and, and they merit time. Uh, so it's, it's not that anybody's been dragging their feet or whatnot, but you know uh, everybody, from the commission, the mayor, everybody wants to make sure that, as you mentioned, we're building a, a facility in the right place. Uh, that we're trying to listen to what the public is saying, we got to figure out how we're going to pay for it effectively, mm-hmm. and so that takes a little bit of time. I appreciate that it would have been great to have built, started building it two years ago, but that wasn't a political reality. Uh, and um, I think, uh, but we are at a point now, I think, where I uh, and perhaps, like I said, the fire may have helped, you know, hone people's attention on this that we need to move forward and we need to move forward uh, on a timely basis.
0: And Commissioner Regalado, for you do you think the county should build uh, a new trash incinerator there at the current site in Doral?
2: Well, two things. Um, and, and I'm glad that, that Jimmy talked about kind of what are the options before the Board of County Commissioners. Um, and that you mentioned, you know, Mike Mike's letter, which I think is very thorough. The Board of County Commissioners has not been presented with a solid waste master plan. And I actually asked about this, you know, months ago I brought it up at our the meeting before last the mayor agreed that maybe a workshop because I was like look if we need to have a workshop like I don't care what we call it but we need to have this conversation because we we're taking this stuff on kind of piecemeal uh and yes I think it's been exasperated by the fire but we needed to make these decisions ahead of time and what I don't want is one item about you know expanding the landfill you know four against five four you know and having that conversation it needs to be a complete. Master plan, which by the way, the county has spent a ton of time and money on. I am a little concerned about this conversation about zero waste. I know that the mayor and, and Jimmy, I appreciate it. Uh, I know that it, it comes up all the time, but I don't think we're being honest with people about how difficult that is. This is not a Miami Dade problem. It's not a Florida problem. It's not even a United States problem. It's an international problem. And it's coming for us also next year with the recycling. Our recycling contracts are up. Broward stopped recycling. I've been like beating the drum on it. We gotta start getting honest with people about what's really happening with trash and, and if what we, the
0: cost is. And the
2: cost of it, right? So I brought an item to see if we can consider, you know, uh, putting it on trains and making it easier to get it out. There's already four counties that are moving it to Georgia. So my my I think we need an incinerator, but I think we also need a safety net and we need to have other options. Um, you know, if we had a hurricane right now, we would be in serious trouble.
0: If blasting through the capacity that's already quite limited.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, what happens with the Dural site? Um, I've actually met with the Dural mayor, uh, and I've mentioned this on several occasions, and I mentioned it um, to our mayor, uh, Daniel Cava. I just want to ensure that we're being honest with people about the timing of it, right? So if we built it on that same site, it would take at a minimum two years. If we moved it because of the permits, it would probably take four years. So we all need to be cognizant of that. And Jimmy brought up a good point. The minute there was a new commission, it changed. And what I don't want is there's a new commission in four years, right? And then they'll change their mind again. But, you know, there is an opportunity to fund it. And I think, you know, my district gives a a good example of that. So I represent a district that has the metro rail. And as Jimmy Mm -hmm. knows, because it was his district too, um, you know, when that was all constructed, where I live, our property values, part of it goes to the county and goes into transportation. We need a similar type of vehicle for waste management around that Dural site. If we're going to consider moving that, then that entire area is going to go up you know in value mm-hmm. a minimum 40%. We, the the residents of Miami County shouldn't pay for that move. The folks that are going to benefit from that move, because they moved to an incinerator, by the way, they built Mm -hmm. a city around an incinerator. I feel their pain, but they made that choice. We have to find another place to move that. And we need to find a vehicle that will pay for it for 20, 30 years. uh, And we can do that at the county. And I think that's the part of the conversation that we need to have. How do we pay for moving it? Yeah. We'll we'll have to
0: leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much, Commissioner Regalado and uh, Jimmy Morales, Chief Operations Officer. Thank you both for, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Kay. I'm Kate Payne. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Since the federal government began phasing out leaded gasoline in cars in the 1970s, general aviation airports have become the number one source of lead air emissions in this country. We're talking about civilian, non-commercial aircraft, crop dusters and banner planes, not jumbo jets. According to federal data, these smaller airports are on par with steel mills and smelting factories when it comes to lead pollution. And South Florida's smaller airports lead the country in toxic lead emissions, according to a new investigation by the South Florida Sun Sentinel. There is no safe level of lead for children. New facts include reduced IQ, slowed growth and development, and learning and behavioral problems. Some residents say county officials aren't doing enough to address lead pollution from these local airports. Do you live near one of these smaller airports? Do you have questions about the health impacts of lead? Give us a call at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Joining me now is reporter Shira Moulton, breaking news reporter at the South Florida Sun-Sentinel, who wrote this detailed investigation. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks. Also with us is George Corrin. He lives in Pembroke Pines, right over the fence from the North Perry Airport. He's also on that airport's community advisory committee. Are you with us, George? We'll, we'll hope to connect to George soon. But Shira, beginning with you, uh, in in your reporting, you found that three South Florida airports are among the top lead polluters in the country. Hello. Hi, George. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so Shira, beginning with you, which airports are, are we talking about?
4: Yeah, so the airports that were in the top 20, um, you have North Perry, which comes in at number five, and then you have Fort Lauderdale Executive and Miami Executive that are both also in the top 20, Um, and then there's also Pompano Beach Air Park, which is high up there as well.
0: Okay, and again, these are general aviation airports, so the smaller like regional operations, not not the international uh, airports where you're catching a a commercial flight. Yeah,
4: you know, it's surprising because you would think because they're these really busy airports that they would be the ones emitting the most pollution, but it's really these tiny uh, piston engine planes Mm -hmm. that are the the culprit. Okay, Uh,
0: and these are publicly run, correct, by county and and local governments?
4: Yeah, all the airports, uh, those top four airports are county or city run. Okay.
0: And so how is it that these smaller airports are now the top sources of lead air emissions in the United States? Yeah, so for
4: a while, um, gasoline in cars was actually the big source of mm-hmm. lead. And that was phased out in the 80s because they showed how bad it was for children. So um, there's been studies on the lingering effects of that. But now that that's no longer the case, it's really just aviation that's still using leaded
0: gasoline. It's pretty much... Um, there's no other industry that does Mm -hmm. yeah and and still not regulated um, out of use okay and for George uh, turning to you now for nearly 50 years you've lived right next to one of these airports the North Perry Airport in Broward County George yes George we're we're turning to you now Um, tell us about your your neighborhood if you could Mm -hmm. what is it like to live just right over the fence from that airport Are you with us, George? I'm with Hopefully, we'll circle back to George again. Uh, but, Shira, for you, remind us what are the health risks of lead exposure, both for children and for adults? Yeah, so
4: the biggest uh, concern is definitely for kids because of um, how it affects brain development. So it's like considered a neurotoxin and even like a really small amount can make this huge difference in a kid's intelligence and IQ. And there have been studies on like how the tiniest difference in a, in blood lead levels can lead to huge like differences in performance on tests and stuff like that. And then in adults too, a long-term lead exposure has been associated with cancer and heart disease. Um,
0: in pregnant women, it can affect like the birth weight of your child and things like that, also. Mm-hmm. And all of these findings have been v- very well established in the medical record, and they're preventable. Um, you know, we we can identify the sources of, of lead and avoid you know these these costs. Um, what have you learned about as far as you know the the broad implications for what lead pollution is is costing us as a community and a country?
4: Yeah, I mean, this has actually been studied like and sort of quantified. Um, they've done studies on how the loss in IQ, the cumulative loss in IQ because of lead exposure has cost like the U.S. economy billions of dollars. Mm. Um, so they've done that with gasoline. And then there's also a study that looked at it with uh, aviation and they found the same result. So on a cumulative level, you can really see the effects, uh, even though it seems like it's such a minor thing. It actually isn't.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm Kate Payne. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the high levels of lead air pollution from South Florida's smaller general aviation airports. Give us a call at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And so Shira Moulton, the stats on lead emissions at these airports are based on EPA estimates. Is anyone actually measuring the lead levels here?
4: Yeah, so that's the issue is we don't actually know um, how much lead is in the air or if it's affecting the kids who live around these airports uh, because no studies have been done on the air, the soil, um, or the blood in these kids as far as we know. Um, so it's even though the EPA can estimate um, how much lead these airports are emitting, we
0: have not been able to actually find out. Mm-hmm. And as far as county and local officials, they have not undertaken this testing.
4: No, they have not. Um, but George Corrid uh, is asking the county to fund a study that will look at that. Um, and
0: hopefully, if they put it in their budget, we might actually see some some answers. Okay. And George, uh, I'm hoping you're you're with us now. Uh, George, are you there? And and we'd love to hear yeah. what it's been like living in your neighborhood for the last 50 years near the North Perry yeah. Airport.
5: Okay, yes, I am here. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh as uh Sharia said there there have has been no, no testing done for lead in our area. But uh I think uh, studies have shown on lead paint and in automobile emissions the hazards of lead.
0: Sure. And uh
5: because these aircraft here at North Perry Airport are powered by leaded avgas, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, the concentration within a certain circumference of the airport is a danger zone. Uh, and what we're what we've asked uh, through our committee is for. Broward County Aviation Department to place money into their budget to give us a benchmark as to what the current levels are, because uh, I believe things with the uh, EPA and the FAA are very hazy right now, and uh, I feel that the residents really need to know this information.
0: Mm-hmm. And George, what's what's the status of getting that study done by the Broward County Commission?
5: Okay, uh, as far as I know, it currently it has been requested, and uh, the final decision will be made in October as to, you know, uh, whether or not the specific funds are allocated, and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully they will be, and then uh Broward County Aviation will have to decide the uh, the scope of the study sure. and uh, find a vendor to uh, conduct it mm-hmm. and,
0: and but, george uh, yeah for for you living for nearly fifty years in the neighborhood right by the North Perry Airport. Tell us about your neighbors, you know, uh, who are the other folks who are living in the area who may be affected by by this pollution?
5: Well, everyone seems to have a concern. Now, recently I spoke with a neighbor who has a new baby, Mm. and uh, she didn't really connect the dots as to lead and the airport. And she was quite upset that, uh, you know, this is something that we're exposed to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you can come inside your home and, uh, but, uh, you know, the outside air comes in and, uh. We don't always spend a lot of time inside our homes. We like to go out. We're going around the community, mm-hmm. so you know we're getting constant exposure.
0: Mm. And we know for, and, for children, uh, it's it's particularly concerning. Yes, the, yeah.
5: Yes, the le- the lead in the developmental processes of children. Absolutely. That, uh, yes, and uh, it affects children greatly. And then at the other end of the spectrum, uh, spectrum as we get older. It, uh, you know, they've been finding connections to Alzheimer's and possibly Parkinson's and other, you know, mental decline issues, if you will.
0: Sure. Lots of concerns there. And turning back to Shira now, um, following your reporting, county officials have said they'll take a closer look at this issue. But what steps can they take to limit lead exposure at these airports? It's a complicated issue for
4: sure because the FAA has a lot of um, control over these airports. Um,
0: Federal administration because these airports are federally funded.
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, But what you saw is like an airport in California did a study where they found, um, they basically showed how children living near the airport had higher levels of lead uh, than children living far away. And the county commission decided, okay, we're not going to sell leaded fuel at our airport anymore. Um, And at first the FAA... Uh, started investigating um, the airport and then the faa decided actually we're going to use these airports as like kind of like an example um, for the transition to unleaded fuel so they were able to do that in california uh, but that's something that county officials say they could not do here why is that they're concerned that, you know, they rely on the FAA for funding. They rely on it for, you know, there's currently a $200,000 project um, on the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood Airport that's underway. Um, they don't want to um, get in trouble with the FAA. So um, I think another thing that they could do that they haven't done, though, is is make residents more aware, because one thing I found out through researching this is just how little people know, um, like George was saying, they're only
0: finding out now
4: that this was even an issue in the first place. Sure.
0: And in in your story, you detail how the area around the North Perry Airport in particular has the highest population density of any of these top lead polluting airports. So a lot of people potentially impacted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Okay. And, George, for you, you know, you and your neighbors are living with this every day as the planes fly over, uh, all hours of of day and night, as you were telling me earlier. What is your message to local officials on why you want them to address this?
5: Well, I think they have to look to the past, and uh, it's been 40 to 50 years since the something was done with the lead and the paints and everything and the switch over in automobiles to unleaded fuel uh, I really don't know why it wasn't looked at sooner but uh, due to the concentration and here in Pembroke Pines the post Hurricane Andrew development at the airport has you know it's more than doubled the number of operations.
0: Hmm. And the population has has increased as well in Broward County.
5: Uh, well, the population is, yes, it has increased, but it's been uh, fairly concentrated since the, since the 70s because the city was founded in 1960, and uh, many of the homes and everything, the expansion within the city has basically been upward. The single-family homes, the, I would estimate maybe like 90% of them uh, are within, say, several miles of the airport have been in existence since the uh, early 60s or even early 70s. So they, we've, we've been around a while, and mm-hmm. the people that are here, myself included, know what the airport was back in the... 70s. Mm-hmm.
0: And when it is now, it was, yeah, it was
5: tall. It was tolerable. Yeah, now it is not.
0: Okay, well, I think yeah. we'll have to we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but thank you so much, Shira Moulton of the South Florida Sun Sentinel for your reporting. Uh, and George Corrin, thank you for coming on and, and sharing your perspective as well.
5: Thank you. Thank you very us. much for <laughs> having me.
0: Thanks. Still to come, Monroe County celebrates its 200th birthday. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Kate Payne. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. This week marks 200 years since the founding of Monroe County on July 3rd, 1823. Locals celebrated, how else, with a ton of key lime pie. In fact, local chefs created what's thought to be the world's biggest key lime pie. If you're into astrology, you may not be surprised to hear that the keys are a cancer. These water signs are known for being charismatic and compassionate, with strong ties to home. For the better part of two centuries, the Keys have been a haven for the weird and the wild, tall tales and big personalities, and some of the best beaches you can find. But the Keys aren't just all party all the time. There's a lot of history in Monroe County, and that's what we will be digging into next here on the South Florida Roundup. What do you think have been the highs and lows of 200 years of the Florida Keys? Give us a call at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Joining me now is Corey Convertido, a historian and curator at the Key West Art and Historical Society.
6: Hi, nice to be
0: here. <laughs> Great, thanks for, thanks for coming. Also with us is Monroe County Mayor Pro Tem, Holly Rashine. Good afternoon from the fabulous Florida Keys. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. So first, we we want to acknowledge that history didn't begin in 1823. Native peoples have lived in what is now South Florida, dating back 1000s of years, including the Tequesta, the Calusa, and much later, the Seminoles. But Holly, looking at 200 years of Monroe County, as we know it, uh, how have you all been celebrating this big birthday?
7: Wow, we have really rung in our bicentennial in a big way. We kicked it off in March with a concert down in Key West with Howard Livingston and the Mile Marker 24 band. They are local celebrities, and I would actually say uh, Howard and his his musicians are bigger than local mm-hmm. celebrities. They're just awesome. And then we had a laser show, uh, mm-hmm. very high-tech. Um, it was a free... And open to the public concert. We had hundreds of people attend, and the laser show detailed quintessential keys icons, uh, whether it was a conch shell or a pirate ship or a scuba diver. It was just really neat and, and a wonderful way to kick off our celebration. And then we carried the celebration up the keys. And um, let's see, in May, We had a sunset celebration on the old seven mile bridge. If you recall, uh, that was the bridge that Henry Flagler Mm -hmm. built and his railroad back in the day. And we had, again, hundreds of people turn out. We had local vendors. um, We we couldn't have ordered the sunset. It was that beautiful. (laughs) Love it. Yeah. And then um, a couple more celebrations to go. We moved up the Keys again, because again, this was Monroe County's Bicentennial, not just one region of the Keys, and we're 120 sure. miles long, so we've got to share the fun with everybody. Lots to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a family picnic in Key Largo at Raul's Marina, where we, again, just had um, a lot of the community turnout, very family-friendly event, face painting, cupcakes, hot dogs. We had the Navy Rock Band was our <laughs> our entertainment. Who knew, right? The Navy has a rock band. The Navy is so instrumental down here in sure. the Keys. And then, of course it culminated with a fireworks show. And then the last uh big event on our actual birthday, our actual bicentennial, was this past Monday mm-hmm. on July 3rd, the day before our nation's Independence Day, where we did have the world's biggest key lime pie. Um, Again, many community members turned Mm -hmm. out. And we culminated with yet another laser and fireworks show.
0: Okay. And Corey, looking to the history as well, uh, when Monroe County was first established, it was before Florida became a state. uh, And the county was just a, a huge piece of land, right? It was it was not just the Keys Island chain itself.
6: No. Originally, when, when Monroe County was established, it incorporated all of the keys, uh, went up to the southern boundary of Lake Okeechobee and actually all the way over to the West Coast and the Gulf of Mexico. So it was much, much larger uh, than we think about Monroe County now. Mm. Um, it was pared down um, through a different series of events, but the, the county was enormous Cute. when it was first established.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Holly, I've read, you know, there have been different territorial disputes over the years as the county lines have, you know, shifted. Uh, but one I read about is, is the fight to make Indian Key a county seat competing with Key West. Is that right?
7: Yes so um at one point that was actually a, a county seat My, and some would say you know that was part of Dade County mm-hmm. um but through the um through the years uh with the population shifting the advent of, or the advent, you know of, of air conditioning mm-hmm. and uh, again people moving around um the lines have certainly changed and and we might want to mention the mock rec- secession that we Um, Know as
0: the Kong Republic. Sure. In the 1980s, (laughs) right? Yes.
7: Yes. The U.S. Border Patrol set up a a roadblock at Florida City, basically treating the Florida Keys like a foreign country. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, we very loyal Keys folks down here were were kind of insulted and declared ourselves the Conquer Republic. Obviously, we promptly surrendered and <laughs> uh, and asked for foreign aid. But uh, <laughs> that name stays strong. You see, we have a Conquer Republic flag. We have Conquer Republic days where they reenact. There's a reenactment,
0: and it's just one of those, you know, quirky, awesome parts of the Florida Keys and a strong independence streak for sure. Absolutely, and. Corey, you know, when, when I visited, you can stand on the edge of the beach and look out at the, you know, end of the, the continental U.S. And it really can feel like you're at the edge of the world a little bit. Uh, but the Keys have long had connections to Cuba, of course, to the Bahamas, you know, people coming back and forth and, and bringing their language and culture with them. Uh, speak to how that's shaped uh, the, the area.
6: To me, the keys have been one of the most, um, you know, or the most prominent multicultural centers that we had in in Florida, just that proximity to the Bahamas, the proximity to Cuba, um, the fact that we were on a a major shipping channel with folks moving uh, back and forth to Europe. It was this multicultural center for people, languages, food, items, Uh, it, it, it was Amazing to see that the, the products that were available here because ships can bring them, uh, you know, enjoying French brandy here <laughs> while having Cubans bring, you know, bring across uh, their foods. The Bahamians have uh, a distinct you uh, in a food palette as well and getting that the different spices and and flavor profiles from them. So we've kind of been this this melting pot uh in Florida before the rest of Florida's even developed. It's and we've carried that through. Uh the keys are are still very multicultural um and we still adopt a lot of those historic um, you know the 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 ideas that we get from the cubans and and from the Bahamians and splicing in the european south americans mm-hmm. its it 's still really a cool multicultural place to be
0: absolutely. I'm Kate Payne. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the 200th anniversary of the founding of Monroe County. Give us a call with your stories about the Florida Keys at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And Holly, you know, a lot of people have been drawn to the Keys over the years. Of course, Ernest Hemingway, but also Jose Marti, Tennessee Williams, President Harry Truman, uh, Judy Bloom. More recently, what is it about the Keys that lends this cultural power?
7: Oh gosh, I don't know if we have enough time on your show to talk <laughs> about that.
0: But I, I will, I will highlight some of
7: of uh, the more main. Um, reasons that people flock here. Obviously, we are a fishing capital of the world. People Mm -hmm. love to come here. Um, Back in the day, we had sponging. Um, Presently, we've got a a very robust uh, sports fishing industry, Mm -hmm. uh, lobstering, stone crab, uh, shrimping down in Key West is is huge. Um, And I, I think it's just a place where you can come and enjoy the environment. You can come and learn about our history, and of course, we're a very—you um, know—our our art scene is always flourishing. Uh, we've got several, uh, as you mentioned, famous folks that have come and and really taken respite here and, and enjoyed all the the things that the keys have to offer. Obviously, it's a very pleasurable um, place to live and work and play and visit. We do a good job at really, you know, bolstering our tourism industry. That's, you know, obviously what what makes this place click. And I think that it is really one of the, and I know I'm very biased, but really one of the most unique places in the world, certainly in the United States Mm -hmm. and certainly in the southeast and it and i think it is just that draw because it is so unique our geography is unique our people are unique the challenges that we face Mm -hmm. are unique Um, our weather is divine yes it's very (laughs) hot right now but um but it is it is just it's one of those, you know, heaven on earth places. And there's so many things to do. And again, being outside, uh, whether you're kayaking, paddle boarding, fishing, scuba diving, snorkeling, just going out on the boat to, you know, have fun. Uh, it, it's just, it's one of those things that allows uh, places that allows people to take a deep breath,
0: mm-hmm.
7: read a book, have a margarita, of course, <laughs> and, sure. and take a, you know, just. Take take some time. Yeah. And I think that is truly the draw. I mean, we've got you know, we've had so many presidents that have come here. Mm-hmm. I think one of the main highlights uh, to to note is President Truman. Sure. He actually set up shop. Uh, mm-hmm. One of his official, you know, second homes was the Truman Little White House. Mm-hmm. If folks are ever in Key West, definitely put that on your list to go visit. It's just uh, it's incredible how they've been able to
0: um, maintain that mm-hmm. and the rich Lots history.
7: Is right there.
0: Yeah. And Corey, you know, for a long time, the Keys have also been a haven for the queer community. Do you have a sense for why that is?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we in in um, in the 1970s, there was big talk uh, you know, at the federal level about reducing some of the uh, naval installations around the country. Mm-hmm. And one of them on the chopping block was Key West. And so in 1974, when that base closed, uh, that meant a large section of the south the southern part of the keys population left like almost overnight businesses were closing houses were left in disarray uh, and the people that really saw the opportunity in 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 buying and relocating to key west um, was was the gay community um, they were up the road uh, wilton manors area mm-hmm. that, or new york and working on broadway and just looking to you know have some privacy be off the grid a little bit and could and see the vision uh in in Key West in particular to move down buy houses pretty pretty cheap um and fix them up and start their own businesses that that they promoted as being gay friendly Tennessee Williams lived uh on the island for over three decades and and he was out. Um and was part of that attractiveness of Key West, mm-hmm. and once these businesses open, they certainly uh, open the door for more and more uh, to move down here and really establish that that openness and gay friendly culture that we still enjoy today. Sure, and
0: affordable housing, you know, back in the day, that sure sounds nice, uh, Holly. Certainly, and and just maybe the twenty seconds have we have left. Um, that's one of the challenges the Keys is facing moving forward. No. Yeah, that's a, a understatement of the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I say that I say that with sweet uh, with love. Yes. Uh,
7: there, there's not a dinner that I go to uh, the grocery store, a business owner that approaches me that that doesn't talk about workforce housing. Um, it, is, it is a challenge that may not ever have a solution, but I applaud all of the, uh, you know, the, the stakeholders, whether it's the business owners, nonprofits, uh, the counties, the municipalities, we have really come to Thank the table you. to try to tackle this very, very difficult issue. You know, yeah, we are yeah. short on land, um, uh, expenses, yes. things like that, but rest assured that is going to remain a priority for years and years to come. Yes.
0: Well, thank you. Holly Rashine is Monroe County Mayor Pro Tem. And thank you, Corey Convertido, historian and curator in Key West. Thank you both. Thank you much. Thank you. <laughs> Finally on the roundup, the Women's World Cup is right around the corner, and funding for Jamaica's preparations for the big tournament had seemed uncertain. That was until a player's mom took it upon herself to fundraise for the team. There was a moment uh, when uh, the reggae girls, as the team is known, made their first World Cup goal, an incredible moment for the team, uh, and was part of an inspiration for Sandra Phillips Brower, the mother of a midfielder, Havana Salon, to create a GoFundMe page for the team. So far, they've raised more than $47,000 to fund the trip's costs at the World Cup. Jamaica will open the tournament play on July 23rd against France. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Matthew Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio is Peter J. Merz. The show's technical supervisor is Richard Ives, Ariana Otero answers the phones, and I'm Kate Payne. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening.
1: WLRN Public Media.